It's on page uh, 1,226 in the Pew Bible. And I forgot to mention this morning, if you're visiting with us, we're happy to have you with us today to grace us with your presence. And uh, there's a visitor card in the pew uh, there. Just fill that out, and at the end, just give it to somebody as you're, you're leaving. And we would appreciate that contact information that you give us. Uh, thank you for being here today. Uh, Revelation uh, chapter 2, verse 12 through 17 but let me just set it up on before I read this. Remember, this is in this uh, part of the Word of God. The Lord is speaking to seven churches. The first one was Ephesus, but He's the way it, it is designed in Scripture. It's really about the entirety, the entire church, whatever time the church may be in existence. That all these things that He's going to be saying to the church, every church should take seriously. So what we have is Jesus walking in the middle of his lampstands. The lampstands are the church, right? Because the lampstands bear the light of the gospel. And of course, in those churches, there are messengers, and those messengers are the elders and uh, the pastors that God is actually speaking through, and he's has a message to say to the churches. And then, of course, it tells us that as he walks in the middle of the lampstands, he is one like the Son of Man. So it tells us who the glorified Son is in verse number 13 of chapter 1. And I saw one like the Son of Man clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. And so this particular person uh, is representing a high priest, he's representing a king, a prophet, and a judge, and all those come together in the person of Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is seen as absolutely being exalted in his church, that he has absolute and total wisdom, that he has absolute omniscient, he knows all things, he knows what is going on in the church, as he walks in the middle of the church and he evaluates the church and he tells the church what he likes and what he does not like. And so we all need to take these messages and make sure that we are doing the things the Lord likes and not the things he does not like because in each case, if we don't repent of those things, then actually the Lord's judgment does come into play. So let's read chapter 2, verse 12 through verse 17 of Revelation. And the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name. And did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. 
So you also have some who, in the same way, hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give to him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but the one who receives it. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before your word today, and as we know that you are the one holding the leaders in your hand, and you are the one who speaks to the churches, I pray, Lord, as we understand the truth here, that we can relate it to our own church and situation and to these days in which we live. So, Lord, we can evaluate as you evaluate. So we can remove move things around that may, may not please you and put things in place that do please you. And I pray, Lord, that we would always guard the truth, for we know the truth is under great attack today and always has been because Satan wants to set up his throne and he wants to usurp your throne. And that will never take place. But he tries. Until you come back again and finish it all, Lord, we're going to have this struggle in this life. So give us wisdom and understanding from the Word of God today. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So as we look at this, John, the Apostle John writing Revelation, really is given a message from the Lord from the messenger, and then he takes the message to the churches, the seven letters to the seven churches. And what he does is there are five to seven things he does in each letter. This is a ministry that God has given to the church of what ought to be in the church and, of course, the pattern that all church ministry should have. Now, he wants to say something to the church to give them some kind of communication that the messenger is responsible to get the message from the living head that's Christ and then turn and give it to the people and then of course it tells a little bit of the character of the one speaking or the one saying these things like in chapter 1 verse 18 it says and the living one I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. Of course, and then in chapter 2, verse 12, at the end of the verse, it says, the one who has a sharp two-edged sword says this. So it gives us something about the character of Christ. And then, of course, in verse number 18, again, it actually is referencing Christ so the church would always center on Jesus Christ, that we would always keep looking at Jesus Christ and nowhere else we should just keep looking at him and to get our direction from his word. He also wants to give a commendation to the church. The faithful one who commends you, he is commending them for the good that they are doing And then there's a condemnation that he tells them what doesn't please him. And then he tells them to consider that there's always a way back, and the way back is to repent, right? And then if you don't repent, there is a warning that he's going to come and cut the lampstand down 
all right? In other words, close the church down, that church that bears the light because they're no longer bearing the light. Some cancer has gotten into the church, and it needs to be taken down. And the Lord does that. He will do that. He tells us he'll do that. So see, brethren, we need to heed the message that we see here. The Lord Jesus communicates to his churches. And verse number 7 of chapter 2, it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the theme then from the first message of the church in Ephesus was that they were declining in their love for the Lord. And because they were declining uh, as light bearers to fulfill their mission, the Lord said to them, you need to repent and get back to your first love and do the first things. And so today we come to the second warning, uh, and the second warning is to the church at Pergamum, all right? And the warning is this, that they are compromising with the world. They have indiscriminate tolerance towards things that are going on in the church that should not go on in the church. In fact, some background uh, to this particular church, uh, it was a city that meant actually Pergamum means parchment because that's where parchment began to be manufactured, where they started writing on what we would call today paper. And they started manufacturing it there and then of course that was the start of many documents being written on paper or parchment it was also the official capital of rome the roman province of asia for two and one half centuries it was just seven miles north of samarna uh, was this town called pergamos and pergamum was a city just north of the Cacaeus River in the south part of Mycia, which is today eastern Turkey, and one of the greatest cultural centers of the Hellenistic era. The Hellenistic era was when the Greek and the Roman uh, cultures came together, and so it became to it, it happened there because it was a, a city that was definitely growing. Actually, the early geographer Strabo. Uh, called the area around Pergamum the richest in Mycia. It was in a natural position of strength, combined this with its religious significance as a temple site, made it a desirable place not only to visit, but a desirable place to store your wealth. It was a very wealthy city, using its wealth to build temples and altars to Greek gods, and the shrine of um, Ascapilius under Eumides, Pergamum attained the height of its power and constructed the altar of Zeus, which stood on a hill 800 feet high above the city, and you can see this for miles. It's, it is a tempting image of an altar to be a chief center of worship for the really the great pagan gods of Zeus, Athena, Dionysus, and others. However, it may be in Revelation, it is referring to the fact that Pergamum was the center of emperor worship. 
in Asia at that particular time. In fact, Pergamus was famous for the worship of the god of healing. It had a center of healing arts, and this center had a medical school that trained celebrated physicians like Galen. Uh, and of course, the god of healing was worshipped there, and this idol was shaped like a serpent, and the symbol used was is, is actually a symbol that is used today still in the medical profession, where you have a serpent uh, that is on both sides with wings on the top, and that was one of the symbols that they used. That came right from there. I'm giving the background information because it is is directly related to the, the second warning, and that warning is compromising with the world. So I want you to be aware of how much influence the culture has upon the church, not only then, but right now, at least you can examine how the world and its cultural demands can press upon the church, upon the group of believers, and then get into the church. That's what happened here. Some of the cultural beliefs got into the church, and it was causing cancer in the body. And, and the Lord is addressing that in this passage of Scripture. Now, if you notice in verse number 12 of chapter 2, it gives the character of Jesus, the last part of the verse. It says, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. Now, this is how the Lord's described here. He's described as in this way because this is a really symbolizes the judgment that can come when he speaks the word. When the Lord speaks, he can speak for blessing or he can speak for cursing. So the church was facing a sobering examination of King Jesus, and in this case, the church was toying with the world, and as a result, religious compromise and sinful practices entered the church. Of course, here, the Word of God is looked at as a sword, right, a weapon, both offensive and a defensive weapon, and of course, in the hand of God, able to slay both sin and sinner, it's also a sharp sword. It's able to cut down into the soul and the spirit of a person, right down to the recesses, the deep recesses of the heart. And then it's also a two-edged sword. That means it cuts both ways. This is uh, the edge of the law against the transgressor, and, of course, the edge of the gospel against the despiser. And there is the edge that will wound and, of course, an edge to open a festering wound in order to bring healing. So that is how the Lord is looked at here in his character. So there's really no escaping the edge of the sword or the word of God. If you turn aside to the right, one edge and side will wound you. If you turn to the left, you fall upon the edge of the sword on that side. So in turn, every way it turns, it will wound or heal. In other words, you cannot escape the word of God. Either it will cut to save, to judge, or to condemn. So that's how the Lord is described. It, cr it cuts every which way, and it surely does its work. 
Next thing is the commendation that the Lord gives the church in verse 13 of chapter 2. It says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and how fast, and, and, and you hold fast to my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So, in other words, the church in this area was suited and situated in a very dangerous environment. Satan's throne is a very interesting phrase there because it probably refers to uh, that Pergamon was the chief, chief center of idol worship for four great pagan gods and was also the center of emperor worship. So Satan, in other words, dominated and influenced the city. Satan didn't simply reside in Pergamum. It says that his seat of power was there. So he was active there, active in both the religious realm and the political realm. Satan, remember, is behind all idolatry. All idolatry, Satan is right there to help people worship other than the true and living God. And why does he do that? When he does that, he tries to rob worship from the true and living God. So we can conclude that these Christians were directly up against satanic opposition. They, he was, had his throne in their midst. So that was a tough place to be as a church. And um, being there, we have to ask ourselves, how do they respond? Well, this is how the believers responded. And here's the positive commendation that God gives. And this is what they're doing right in the midst of that difficult place. It says, number one, in verse 13, they were holding fast my name. That's the name of Jesus, right? And matter of fact, they kept holding to the correct teaching about Jesus Christ. So that Jesus is God, that he is the second person of the Trinity, that he is the pre preexistent son of God who became flesh at a fixed point in real history and died on the cross for sinners and rose from the grave and then ascended to the Father. See, and they were awaiting for his return, so they held fast to that. In fact, that's where cults go wrong. You want to examine a cult? Go right to what they believe about Jesus. And then you don't even have to examine the rest. Because if they get Jesus wrong, they get it all wrong. Because he is the center from Genesis to Revelation of what God's plan was to redeem and save humanity. All right, if you get him wrong, your salvation that you think you have may be in jeopardy. In fact, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 22, it says, Who is a liar? But the one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ, that is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father, and the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. So the Word of God teaches that God has manifested himself as one God, but in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so in Scripture, it also tells us that in 1 John, but it says, by this know that the Spirit of God, that 
every spirit that confesses that Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And of course, they were saying that Jesus is Lord. So they were holding to that in the midst of the attack against them to give that up. And why would they want to give it up? They, people would say to them, listen, you got all these other gods here. You're not, you don't have the only God. We have gods too. So why don't you just take your God and add it on to all the rest of the gods and we'll all be a happy family. The church says, no, we can't do that. Sorry. You know why? Because Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. The only way you can go to the Father is through him. So all your gods are false gods. Of course, you know what? When that message becomes clear to a culture that is against you, you're in trouble. Right? You're not in trouble with God, so you're on the right side. But you're in trouble with that culture. And believe me, you want to see a culture get hostile? Bring up Jesus and say Jesus is the only way. You're going to have a hostile group of people. All right? We live, you know, Satan's throne's there, Satan's throne's here too. Right? Right in our midst because we have a, what's going on in government, what's going on in religious systems is all a plan where Satan is behind it against the true church, against the truth of the word of God. So it, it looks like from the writings of the apostolic fathers like Irenaeus and Ignatius, and of course the apostolic fathers were the disciples of the apostles. And they also wrote that there were um, aberrant doctrines of God and of Christ in the church. And they were, of course, that led to uh, live fleshly and pleasure-filled lives. If you don't have the true Christ, you can live any way you want. If you have the true Christ, you can't live any way you want. Not only that, you have the Spirit of indwelling you, but now you have the Word of God telling you this is what God approves of and this is what God doesn't approve of. We have very clear teaching in the Word of God. In fact, I'm going to come to it, but if you notice in verse number 6 of chapter 2, it says, Yet this you did you yet this you do have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans or the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. In other words, who were they? Well, let me read what the church fathers said about them. It says, flee also the impure Nicolaitans, falsely so-called, who are lovers of pleasure. And then he says this about them. If anyone says that there is one God and also confesses Christ, Jesus, but thinks that the Lord is a mere man and not the only begotten Son and wisdom and the Word of God and deems him to consist merely of soul and body, such a one is a serpent that preaches deceit and error for the destruction of men. This is what they're saying about the Nicolaitans that these are the people, there's a doctrine that came into the church, and this doctrine was the wrong doctrine of Christ. All right, so wrong or unsound teaching is going to bring aberrant behavior in the people. All right? Sound doctrine brings holy behavior and godly behavior. Right? That's always true. And that's why you see many of these cults that are uh, presented and that we know about the behavior of the people are really, really strange, 
right? And a lot of times it has to do with pleasure, money, wealth, and of course, sexual perversion that goes on there. And it goes on to say in the church fathers, it says this, if anyone confesses the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost and praises the creation, but calls the incarnation, that's the enfleshment of Jesus, merely as an appearance and is ashamed of the passion of Christ, they have denied the faith, not less than the Jews who killed Christ. And then they go on to say this, if anyone confesses these things and that God the Word did dwell in a human body, being within it as the Word, even as the soul also is in the body because it was God that inhabited it and not a human soul, but affirms that unlawful unions, that's unlawful married unions, are a good thing and places the highest happiness in pleasure and does, as does the man who is falsely called the Nicolaitan. This person can neither be a lover of God nor a lover of Christ, but is a corrupter of his own flesh and therefore void of the Holy Spirit and a stranger to Christ. And their admonition is to flee, therefore, the wicked devices and snares of the, of the Nicolaitans because they are children of the world or children of the culture. That, of course, is being led by and pushed by Satan himself. So the apost- apostolic fathers were the first fruits of the apostles. And when one reads them, you will find that your Bible is their Bible, your faith is their faith, and your Savior is their Savior, and your God is their God. You'll find they say that from the writings of the apostolic fathers, they can accumulate almost the whole of the Bible because they quoted Scripture so much. And so it, it really gives us another uh, place where we can say we have the Word of God given to us. It is reliable. It is accurate. It has been protected by God. Now, right back in Revelation, here's a second common commendation that the Lord gives the church in verse 13. You did not deny my faith. So under tremendous pressure, they did not deny the essential gospel message that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. And by this testimony, they were saying, your gods are not Lord, nor is the emperor Caesar Lord, but Jesus Christ alone is Lord of all. See, so they stood true against emperor worship, which is in reality against satanic opposition. So that means they were under a looming threat that hovered over them. If you continue to hold that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, then you could lose your occupation. In fact, you can lose your life. Well, look at verse number 13, what it says. It says this. It says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, my my witness, my faithful one, who was what? Killed among you. Who was he? Where Satan dwells. He was one of the pastors of the church there. And what did he do? He 
He led the people to say, no, you cannot give into the culture. You cannot add Christ onto a bunch of other gods and get him to be worshipped along with all the other gods. No, he's exclusive. He is the only one. He is God's plan for the salvation of man. You cannot. And he didn't. And what happened? He got killed. He was martyred for his faith. And you know what? Even today there are pastors being martyred for their faith. We don't hear about it very much in America. But they're being martyred because they're standing up for the truth. And it may mean they lose their family, they lose their home, they get imprisoned, or even they get killed. Maybe being killed is the easier way out so you don't have to suffer. See, the reference to the martyrdom of Antipas, my faithful one, can easily be understood in light of the Christian refusal to worship the emperor in the city which Satan was behind all that worship. So we glean from this portion of Scripture that culture often tests our faith as to what we believe. Also, many of the pressures of life come from the enemy against us, Satan himself. And he, his, the, the web that he weaves within cultural structures and idolatries are very complex because Satan tries to hinder the forward movement of God's work. And for example, when the apostle Paul tried to visit the Thessalonians, he wanted to encourage them. It says in Thessalonians 4, I wanted to come to you, chapter 2, verse 18. I, Paul, more than once, but Satan hindered me. So Satan is very much involved with being against the true church, trying to hinder its work, trying to discourage you, trying to dim the light of the gospel so you no longer, you give into the culture, and as you give into the culture, the light of the gospel gets dimmer and dimmer and dimmer until it goes out. See, this is the warning that he's given to the church. Now, let me just kind of like diverge a little bit into uh, a bit, get a bit philosophical. Let me do that for a few minutes because I want to talk about cultural relativism is something that we as Christians really must take seriously. Cultural relativism says there is no measure of right and wrong other than the standards of our society. That's what they say. In other words, actions are right or wrong just by consulting the standards of the society. Usually when it comes to morals and the moral code of a society, that determines whether a certain action is right and wrong right or wrong usually is held that there is no moral truths or universal truths that holds for all people all the time so that means that it would be arrogant for us to judge the conduct of other people instead we should adopt an attitude of tolerance toward the practices of other cultures See, this mindset often expects and sometimes even demand that Christians be tolerant while they themselves are intolerant and often very hostile when others do not agree with their lifestyle choices. For example, simple subjectivism 
says that something is morally good or bad based on whether a person approves of a thing or disapproves of a thing. For example, if somebody says um, abortion is morally acceptable, it's morally right, it's morally good, it ought to be done, then see the conclusion is that that is approved of in the culture. Well, it is approved of by the government in our culture, but is it approved of by God? See, that's the question that the church has to answer, right? And so if we turn that around and we say, okay, abortion is morally unacceptable, it is wrong, it is bad, it it ought to be done away with. See, then that is the position of the church. But when we make that position, we go head on with the culture. And the culture, with all its wealth, and all its influence, and even now with the history of it, does not like that. However, nothing can be morally right or wrong simply because someone has strong feelings about it or some society says so or some group with a loud voice, money, and influence pushes it in some lobby. See, without a standard set by the one who is all-wise, all-loving, all-powerful, then in reality... One cannot know what is right or wrong for everyone based on just society. Now, some have called the divine standard, the divine command theory, is a theory that says something that is morally right is a matter of being commanded by God, all right, And something that is morally wrong is a matter of being forbidden by God. All right, well, that is true. But for followers of Jesus Christ, it is not merely a theory. Instead, it is our standard to live by. Our standard is the authoritative, inerrant, infallible, trustworthy word of God, which gives us timeless and universal principles to live by. So the word of God is God-breathed. It comes from God. It wasn't just made up by man. So that means religious moral views, social moral views, cultural moral views change from generation to generation, and in our day, from year to year. And so we have to be careful and we have to be discerning as a church that Jesus Christ had a serious complaint against this church because some were holding to, instead of the true doctrine of Christ, which leads to practical holiness and a godly lifestyle, they were holding to a false doctrine of Christ which was manifested in their unholy and ungodly lifestyle. Now, let's just take a few verses and look at that for a minute, saying this, that true doctrine is designed by the Holy Spirit to lead one in the direction of a holy and godly life. Is that true or not? Well, let's look at a few verses. Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, and then Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22 to 24. In fact, in the letter of the Ephesians, it says that we were not only chosen for salvation, but unto holiness. Look what it says in verse 4 of Ephesians 1. It says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that's election, 
that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. So in other words, when somebody is called to salvation in Jesus Christ, they not, are not only called to be saved, they're called to live a holy life. And how does that happen? By true doctrine. And then look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22 to 24. It says that in reference to your former manner of life, that's your old life you lived, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So in other words, that when a, somebody trusts Christ as their Lord and Savior, the Spirit of God's job is to make you holy. It's your job to cooperate with him as you're learning the word of God. So unsound doctrine does not have that in its teaching. All right, so that means anything could go, I can claim that I believe in Jesus and do anything I want, right? But when you claim to believe in Jesus, you can't do anything you want. Now, another passage I'd like you to turn to before I, I move on is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 through 11. Now, in this particular passage of Scripture, you see how the Apostle Paul teaching young Timothy about being a pastor, and he says to them, listen, whatever is sound doctrine is going to lead somewhere. 1 Timothy 1, verse 8 says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Verse 9, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whoever or whatever else is contrary, notice, to sound teaching. That's healthy th teaching. It says, verse 11, 11, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted. So the gospel, the true gospel of Jesus Christ, always leads with sound doctrine to a holy lifestyle. So the question would be, what are you willing to stand for? Or what are you willing to die for? See, we often do not think in terms of dying for our faith. Yet the fact that we are followers of Jesus Christ puts the enemy's crosshairs on us. And the reason why is because they hated Jesus, they will hate us also. Isn't that what the scriptures teach? The scriptures teach in Mark, you will be hated by all because of my name. And then he also says in John, if you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. So the scripture even warns us about living in a way so that all people will like us. If you want everyone to like you, you will be comp compromising the truth. I'll tell you that right now. Right, Because this is what it says in Scripture in the Gospel of Luke. It says, woe to you when all men speak well of you. 
for their fathers used to treat the false prophets the same way. In other words, they were giving in to the teaching of the false prophets and say, wanting the false prophets to say good things about them. We can't do that. We, we, don't, we, we don't have that right to do that. We don't want it to do that because that doesn't please our Lord. So let's go back to Revelation and notice in verse 14 and 15, here's the condemnation to the church. All right, he just told them these are the good things about what you're doing. Now here's the condemnation that I'm telling to the church in verse 14. It says this, but I have a few things against you. Remember, in the church of Ephesus, he only had one thing but it was a very severe thing, and that was declining love for the Lord himself. Here it says, I have a few things. The state of the church is that they were tolerating two groups of heretics, those who were holding to the teaching of Balaam, it says, and to the Nicolaitans. For it says in verse 14, but I have the... A few things against you because you have there some who hold to the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things, sacrifice to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. Now that tells you right away they have an aberrant doctrine of Christ. Why? Because of the end result. The end result is not a holy life. The end result is idolatry, and immoral living. See, that's always the end result. It's always about some sexual thing and something also about money. We're going to find out in a second that Balaam's problem was money. He wanted to do anything he could for money. Any deal you want, if I can make money on it, I'll do it. And that's what his problem was. So the doctrine of Balaam probably refers to the extensive influence of the immoral and idolatrous worship of the idolatry going on in this city. And of course it says, because some of you hold, that's an interesting word in the Greek, to the teaching of Balaam. So in other words, all false teachers really uh, prove to have similar qualities no matter what day they expose themselves. The first quality that they have is they have the ability to persuade others that their position has equal or even superior validity to what a person presently holds. In this case, it was the doctrine of Christ, right? So, and how do they do that? Well, they do that by, if you notice, it says they who keep teaching. That means persistent teaching. They keep teaching the same thing. And what happens when you persistently teach the same thing over and over and over? You know what that is? That's brainwashing. People end up believing, if you say it six times, they end up believing that that's the truth without any investigation, right? So that's what false teachers do. They always really have the same message, and that message is just pounded on people until they say, okay, I guess that's true, you know? But that's, see, for a believer, you can't do that. But that's the characteristic. They, have, they usually have good oratory ability to convince people of something they don't believe that they ought to believe. 
But if you know the truth, you won't be swayed by that. You'll stand strong. And this church wasn't swayed by that, but they were tolerating these people. So there were some groups in the church who brought this into the church. And they, they were the people that were looking, they were looking at us and saying, okay, we'll, we'll let you go for a while, right? And the Lord says, no, you can't do that. Because if you don't take care of them, I'm going to take care of them, right? And that's the job of the church, the whole church, the pastors, the elders, all right, the people in the church, that are, that's our job to watch out for those things. A second thing about the false teachers is that they have an intense desire to have their own following of disciples, all right? It says here in verse 14, they put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. Now, he's referring back to the Old Testament, all right? The brethren... Uh, brethren, an obstacle is really an instrument to divert someone off the original path, hopefully in the wrong dire- direction, to enable, to trap them, to entrap them in something they uh, weren't formally believing. So to encourage acceptance and participation with the seemingly harm- harmless and culturally accepted practices already being done as the norm. And that's what happens when a message is repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated, and then it's done, it's done, it's done, it's done, it becomes normal, right? Don't a lot of people today believe that abortion is the normal thing? It's just the choice of the woman, right? And so what, what they were doing here is that they were eating things sacrificed to idols, and we know in Scripture that says be, behind every one of these idols is demons, so they were sacrificing to demons, all right? And they were committing acts of immorality. And this was becoming normal in the church. See, Balaam taught Balak how to lead the Israelites into sin in both ways. Balaam tried unsuccessfully to prostitute his prophetic gift and curse Israel for money, often offered by Balak, king of Moab. So he devised the plot to have the Moabite women seduce Israelite men into intermarriage. Now, remember, Israelite men were not supposed to intermarry with other cultures, right? They were supposed to marry just Jewish people. If you go out that, then you bring their idolatrous practice into the community, into the family, into the nation, you're already asking for cancer to take over the whole thing, right? Now, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Numbers, right? Now, that's in the Old Testament. And I want you to look at this passage because this is really giving the background of what happened and what he's saying in Revelation. So it's, it's if you're uh, not familiar too much with your Bible, you uh, remember that the scripture is, is right there, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, right? So that's where you'll find it. And then Numbers chapter 25, I want you to notice verse 1 through 11. I probably won't read all of it. I'll just read the first couple of verses and then verse number 8. Or maybe I'll read all of it. Well, we'll see. All right. Chapter 25 of Numbers, look at verse 1. It says, while Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab, 
for they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel, verse 3, joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. I'll read the rest. It says, and the Lord, verse 4, said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal Peor. Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses, in the sight of all the congregations of the sons of Israel, while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And verse 7, it says, When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, he was the high priest, and that's the son of the high priest, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through the body. And then it says, so the plague on the sons of Israel was checked, and those who died by the plague was 24,000. Verse 10, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Now, you read a passage of Scripture like that and say, whoa. But why did that happen? Because God always warned that if you lead, let idolatry and other religious practices into what is true, it will corrupt it. So the only way to get rid of it, just like cancer, you got to cut it out. you got to get rid of it, because if you don't, it will take over everything. So the end result, you know what the end result is? False teaching. You know what the end result is? False living. So the end result is that you'll end up compromising and dimming the light of the gospel. It leads to judgment, it leads to destruction, and it leads to death, and that's what we see in this passage of scripture. But did you know, did you know that our northern neighbor, Canada, Ontario, the government of the Providence of Ontario just passed a law recently that allows the government to take children from the home of parents who disagree with their child's expressed gender identity. For example, if Sally says that she is a he, or Sam says that he's a she, in other words, if the parents are not seeking and supporting the best interests of the child in reference to gender identity, gender expression, and sexual orientation, regardless of religious upbringing of the child or the moral compass of the parents, the government is putting the onus on what the child believes they should be. And if they don't comply to it, they break the law. See, this is an anti-parent law which does not support parents as the first educators. That is also anti-family, pro-sexual, and it 
promoted by the LGGBDTTTIQQAAPPOR community. And the letters go on. And of course, that's not just in our northern neighbors. It's in our universities. It's in our high schools right in our own towns. How did that get there so fast? Well, the internet had a large amount to do with that. See, in other words, those kind of practices are already being pressed upon the church. Some of those letters that I mentioned, let me just mention what just meant for just sake of information. Mention to what some of those things mean. L means lesbian. G means gay. G means gay Republican. B means bisexual or bi-romantic. D means drag queen. T means transgender or transsexual. T means transvestite. T also means transbarian. I means intersexual. That means both male and female. Q means queer. Q also means questioning. A means asexual. A means a gender or allies of those who believe that. P means pansexual. P also means pan uh, pedophilia. And then O means omnisexual. And you're not going to believe this. R means robosexual. That we're leading, we're being led to a culture where people will, yes, have sex with robots. Crazy day we live. But I tell you what, we have to be careful. Because all these things are being pressed upon our culture, our system, and eventually the church is going to have to deal with it. And either the church is going to let it go on, or they're going to have to stand up. But that, that may mean unfavorable results against the church and against us as a community. Losing, in fact, our presidential candidates talked about churches losing their tax-exempt status in the last debate. What does that have to do with anything? Leave the churches alone, they'll do fine, and they'll actually help you. But you come against the church, and why is that? Because Satan is against the church. Now, you think, I talked about Canada. Well, let me read this to you. There's a resolution in the state government government of California, which is trying to pass resolution S. CR 99. This resolution is seeking to force pastors to embrace the LGBTQ ideology as normal behavior. So that's right in our backyard, right? It's coming our way. And, uh, And you know what? Our young people are being barraged by this kind of teaching. Right? And they're being barraged so much they're going to end up thinking this is normal. Everybody's doing it. It's not a big deal. I have many friends. But the thing is that that's not the point. The point is that it will infect everything. And then we won't be able to hold up the light of the gospel, which saves people's souls from eternal destruction. If we dim that light, then we're all in trouble. See, so we have to take these things very seriously, and we have to make them a matter of prayer. Because that's what goes on. The Nicolaitans were people, in fact, 
they were people of what they call Nicholas, who actually, some church fathers say he was a, a deacon uh, and, uh, and then was a false believer and became an apostate. And because of his credentials, he was able to lead the church astray. And like Balaam, he led the people into immorality and into wickedness. The Nicolaitans followed Followers of Nicholas were involved in immorality and assaulted the church with sensual temptations. Even Clement of Alexander says that they abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats, leading a life of self-indulgence. So they're teaching perverted grace, which perverted the gospel, which dimmed the light of the church holding the truth of the gospel, and of course it gave liberty and license that people could say they are believers and just live any way they want with, no, with nothing to come against them. In fact, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15 says, they, were, they wandered off the right road and followed the way of Balaam, son of Peor, who loved to earn money by doing wrong. See, Balaam will do anything for money, Jude chapter 1 tells us. So here we have it, compromise, money, possessions, wealth, pleasure. The cultural pressures that are persistent upon uh, our church, upon our communities, upon our state, upon our country, uh, until they repeat it so much it becomes normalized behavior and then nobody's questioning it. See, that's not good. So young people, what they end up doing, I don't have to get married, I'll just shack up, because marriage is that's an old fuddy-duddy thing. That's, that's what the old people did. I'm just going to shack up, and, and that's it. Or same partner unions uh, think that, I'm glad they're not calling it some places marriage, but unions, uh, you know, they think God won't judge them, but it says in Hebrews, God will judge them. Also, we, we know that sexual practices sell, sex sells. So you're always going to make money that, doing that. So doing questionable things for financial gain is something we all have to be careful about. So what's the counsel the Lord gives as I close? Look at verse 16. Therefore, repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. So, you know, the Lord, the, the Lord is saying to the church, listen, if you don't take care of this inside the church, I will take care of it. Get right with God or lose out. So when believers tolerate worldly and pagan views and sinful practices, the church faces the possibility of losing its testimony and its influence. So the church fails. If the church fails to be different, it'll compromise with the world. That's what it'll do. And what's the challenge the Lord gives to those who are faithful? Look at verse number 17. He always gives a challenge, encouraging, encouraging challenge. Verse 17, he who has an ear. That means people are listening let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Now, it's really hard to unpack that. 
But hidden manna really, really was refers to the manna. Manna was the heavenly food sent by God to the children of Israel in the wilderness. So it typifies the spiritual food provided by God in his very word. And then also the white stones, the white stones were used in ancient times to render a verdict. The white stone was acquittal and the black stone was condemnation. And so here he mentions that it's a white stone, in other words, being acquitted from any wrongdoing by God and forgiven, and of course, meaning entrance, like an entrance ticket into a heavenly heavenly feast. So false doctrine and worldliness always go hand in hand with worldliness always leading the way. So Christians Christians tend to forget that modernism was not first a theological agenda, but a methodological agenda. Early modernists were not trying to hit the core of biblical faith. They were simply trying to make Christianity more palatable to a cynical world. We, we can't do that. We should not do that. I don't know about you, but the, the gospel is offensive. When you say that Jesus is the only way, that's so exclusive. In our pluralistic society, people just can't tolerate that kind of language. And, and yet, God told Jeremiah the prophet, he said this to him in, in, in Jeremiah chapter 5, an appalling and a horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesied falsely, and the priests ruled by their own authority and my people love it so. See, that can't take place. We all have to be careful that we want to hold to the truth. We want to purpose to do what pleases Jesus Christ, to do things that are honoring to the name of Christ so we are never going to be desired to be accepted by the world or by influence, by power, or by money to believe or do something opposite of what is true in the Word of God. And I would like to say that when it comes to you know, immorality, I would, would like to say that uh, everybody, especially young people, need to purpose in their heart that they will be a God-fearing, first of all, that they would be a Christian and know what it means to be a Christian, but they would be a God-fearing Christian, and they would seek out someone to marry who is a God-fearing Christian, and not just marry anybody. Because when you marry someone like the Israelites were tempted to marry the Moabites, when you bring that in, you bring all kinds of confusion into a relationship, and the relationship is going to end up being destroyed because one person wants to serve the Lord, and another person doesn't want to serve the Lord. All right, either that's going to break up or it's going to be very difficult, right? And you'll, you'll never see eye to eye. You'll always be like this. So save yourself, young people, a lot of heartache and pain and marry. If you're going to get married, not everybody needs to get married, but if you're going to get married, marry someone who's a God-fearing believer, not just somebody who has a profession of faith but someone who lives their faith, who believes the word of God, who could lead you in the truth and who stands for it. See, that's, that's what we have to do. So this second warning 
to God's light-bearing community is don't loosen your grip on the truth because it bears the fruit it will bear the fruit of sinful compromise sinful desires and of course will lead you to desire wealth to fulfill sinful uh, pleasures and all kinds of deviant stuff that goes with it and then if you don't stand for what the culture is trying to press on the church, then Satan will win. And, um, but in this case, the Lord says, if you don't take care of them, I'm going to come against the church myself. And I'm going to do it with my two-edged sword, and I'm going to cut that cancer out so my church can still bear the light. So that's a heavy message, but it is a true message. And it's a message that's very real to us today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the truth. And Lord, I, I must admit the truth is very cutting. But it is also very clear. Lord, help us in this day in which we live. And some of the things that are going on right outside our door, right in our own communities and schools and, and universities and government that we would not, we would not give in to their pressure, but we would trust you, that we would hold to the truth and that our main goal would be to please you. And Lord, I pray that you would intervene on our behalf and give us the wisdom to know how to navigate these difficult waters today. And I pray, Lord, that you would make us, everyone here today, serious Christians who know what we're in for. And I pray, make us people who pray that, Lord, you would give laborers for the harvest is white. And I pray, Lord, we'd be able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those who have not yet heard it and believed it. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who does not know you as their Lord and Savior, today would be the day they may come and confess you as their Lord and Savior. And I pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.